This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. We're going to do a little fun activity as the end, and that's going to be a little quiz, and you're going to please use your audience response system, and we'll see how well you do. I'm going to take this opportunity to thank you. I've been honored and I feel very humbled to have been the medical director the last couple summer session years. I hope you've enjoyed all the, the both of these two year sessions. I've done my best to get the best of speakers. And I think if you get good speakers, you wind them up and just let them carry the day, which I think has happened quite nicely. So. Okay, my talk coming up. I'm going to warn you in advance. Thank you all for staying. I'm going to warn you this isn't easy. There are going to be some you get wrong. It's okay. Trust me. It's a, it's a, it's a tough quiz. Some of it is. Some of it's pretty easy. But it's also a good way of teaching because when you are thinking wrong and you find out why you thought wrong, you usually don't do that again. It makes good positive engrams. Okay, that's usually a good sign. Okay, here we go. Diagnostic quiz for which I have absolutely no conflicts of interest. Okay, you walk in the room. This is an acne patient. And she says, I don't feel well. And you ask her, how don't you feel well? And she says, I'm tired. My gums are bleeding. I used to run three miles a day, but now I get short of breath when I try to exercise and I've lost some weight. And I'm showing you part of her sort of just general, you don't feel well, I'll look you over real quick. Exam. What's her diagnosis? Leukemia, hepatitis, porphyria, hemophilia, or carcinoid? Okay, 60% of you said leukemia. What I'm showing you is a pale conjunctiva. So she's anemic. So what you do is you send her for a CBC. There's her CBC. By the way, almost all of these cases, I think all of these, are my patients. The histories are accurate. This is what happened. Hemolagone, hematocrit are both low. Her white count's high. She's got myeloblasts in her peripheral blood, she's got leukemia. And just very quickly, about 50,000 new cases of leukemia in the US. The type of leukemia depends upon the age of the patient. So she's a young adult. She actually uh, ended up with AML as her diagnosis. She was treated and is alive, well, and recovered. Here's an easy one. 13-year-old boy, mom brings him in because he's got this hair loss. I asked if it was itchy. He said, maybe. He's 13, you know, it's all monosyllabic. None of it's reliable. Only historical thing of note is, however, they have a new kitten in the household. What's the diagnosis? Hypothyroidism, trichotillomania, syphilis, tinea capitis, or alopecia neoplastica. And 84% of you said tinea capitis, a little smattering of everything else. 
Okay, so shine the woods lamp on, didn't fluoresce. That's okay. Most microsporum species fluoresce. Trichophyton tonsorans is the most common cause of tinea capitis now, and it does not fluoresce. But then I also plucked some hairs, sent them off for culture. That was negative. A saline moistened swab run right over one of the areas. I usually do both of those. Sent that off a culture, it was negative. The new kitten was taken to the vet because it's from the new kitten, there ought to be an area of hair loss. So the new kitten was looked by the vet. The vet said, there's no fungus here. So what do you do? So you bring him back in and you talk to more. Sent mom out of the room. He's having sex with his 20-year-old sister. His sister was an intravenous drug abuser who works as a commercial sex worker, prostitute, who trades sex for drugs so she can get money. Sister had a rash four to five months ago. He knew about it, but it went away, so they all didn't worry about it. Now, what lab should I do? RPR. 1 to 256. This is secondary syphilis. So that's the right answer, which 5% of you actually got. Now remember, syphilis is quite resurgent. I talked about this at least once during the entire meeting. One of the things that can present as is moth-eaten alopecia, so little patches. It's not big confluent areas usually, like you'd see with alopecia areata. Moth-eaten, non-scarring alopecia looks a little like AA. It's three to seven percent of patients may actually present like this, who have secondary syphilis. So what's the treatment for secondary syphilis? It's bicillin, unless you're allergic deathly to penicillin. So here was his treatment. He never got antifungal treatment because I couldn't find a fungus. And he already grew. So remember I said earlier, older people can acquire syphilis, so can younger people. Age, financial situation, status in the community, none of that matters. Syphilis is a non-discriminatory infection. Now, by the way, because his sister was having sex with an underaged individual, that's actually illegal. So, and, you know, she's carrying, she's never been treated. She had what sounds like resolved secondary syphilis. So I turned her name into the public health authorities who brought her against her will to the STD clinic, tested her, verified that in fact, serologically, all the clinical signs and symptoms were gone, but serologically, she had syphilis. So they treated her, so at least that stopped the transmission. But always remember, secondary syphilis, now resurgent in the United States, spares no one. Sent mom out of the, out of the room, and I said, do you know what sex is? He said, yeah, I'm having it with my sister. That's all it took. A very, you know, I didn't say, oh, you got syphilis. Do you know what sex is? For a 13-year-old, the next sentence out of he, he's not going to hide it. He was actually kind of proud of it. I'd never seen the sister as a patient. He was a new patient, so I didn't know any of the family members. So you know what sex is? Very simple question. Okay. Absolutely, but it wasn't my first choice. Why did I do all that stuff about fungus? The same reason you all voted for Tinea capitis, because under those conditions with a new kitten in the house, this was a slam dunk for Tinea capitis. But it was in my mind. I mean, you know, it's choice number five out of five. But yes, it, it crossed my mind. Okay, here's a gentleman I saw at the VA hospital. He's a 78-year-old. He's got this oozing scalp nodule for four months. It's getting bigger. His past medical history is interesting in that he's had four significant basal cells, all of which required Mohs surgery to remove. 
We view his systems as negative social histories, unremarkable except for the fact that he smokes a lot. 100-pack year history. You can see the morphology of the lesion. What do you think the diagnosis is? Basal cell, keratoacanthoma, bronchogenic carcinoma, leishmaniasis, North American blastomycosis. And we've got a majority C for bronchogenic carcinoma. A and B for basal cell and keratoacanthoma together equal the bronchogenic carcinoma. A uh, few people thinking about oddball infections. Okay, so what would you do with this guy? I don't know what it is for sure looking at it. What would you do? Your biopsy, of course. And here's his biopsy. He's got these glandular-like structures, these don't really look like islands of basal cells, in his dermis, and there's his chest x-ray, strong history of smoking. So this is bronchogenic carcinoma, metastatic to scalp. For those of you who wrote, voted keratoacanthoma or basal cell carcinoma, those were both on the submission path slip. You're fine. Um, Leishmaniasis without a travel history, there are about 50 cases in the world's literature. Now, all but a handful are from Texas, so it's not totally unreasonable. And I've seen North American blastomycosis that looked exactly like this. So all those things were reasonable. But you got to think, older person, heavy smoker, it certainly could be metastases. And past history of basal cell, older person, kind of this rounded border, certainly could be basal cell, could be KA. Okay, just to point out, cutaneous metastases occur in about 5% of individuals with in internal cancer. The most common metastatic sites are the trunk, chest wall and back, and the scalp, where his lesion was. Can be anywhere, but those are the most common ones. So it can look like a lot of different things, Always remember, hairless tends to be the case because the metastases are in the dermis and they're filling that dermis with cancer, wiping out hair follicles. So right where this lesion was, he had no scalp hair. So firm, hairless, sudden onset, think about cancer. Usually, usually cutaneous metastases are not the presenting sign of internal cancer with one fairly notable exception, that's renal cell carcinoma, frequently presents with cutaneous metastasis. That's how the diagnosis is made. So, but it can be, and here's an example of it. What is this metastatic? Metastatic what? Look at the lesions. What do you think? What color do you see? Dark blue, black? Melanoma, this is metastatic melanoma, widely spread metastatic melanoma. You see all the surgical scars. They've already had metastases from visceral organs removed surgically. Now we would treat this medically, but when I, when I saw her, we didn't have medical treatment. Okay, this one's a tough one, I'll admit it, but you will never forget it. If you don't know this, you will now. So here's a distant shot of the woman Here's a close-up, these parallel undulating areas of red, and if you look closely at the edge of the red, there's a big trailing superficial scale. So this is pathognomonic. See it, know it. 79-year-old female, minimal pruritus associated with this rash, she takes Loratadine and calcium, those are her medicines. We should all be so good at 79. Otherwise, in absolutely good health, she feels totally 100% healthy. What's her diagnosis? Drug eruption from an occult drug she's not telling you about. Exfoliative erythroderma, iron deficiency, internal carcinoma, or is this an odd variant of psoriasis? What do you think?
okay, we have a dichotomy here. So exfoliative erythroderma and internal cancer. And then a little bit for iron deficiency, nothing much else there of any consequence. So labs, she has anemia, chest is normal, chest x-ray, CT scan of the abdomen's normal, mammograms normal, upper endoscopy shows a little bit of reflux. What one other test needs to be done to evaluate her systemically? Colon. That's her colonoscopy. That's one big, huge adenocarcinoma. So, the proper answer is actually internal carcinoma. And her eruption has a name. It's called erythema, red, gyrotum, it's kind of gyrating, repens, it's repeating. So you have these parallel gyrating red things with that bit of trailing scale, usually asymptomatic. It is a very reliable sign of internal carcinoma. If you, it's rare, so you may never see it. But if you see this, that patient has cancer. Very, very common. Most common lung cancer, then second colon, which is what she had. It usually precedes the diagnosis of cancer 80% of the time. So this is your chance to tell the patient, work with their primary care provider, you need a workup for cancer. And if you don't find it the first time, you need to redo the workup in six months because they've got cancer. Just, you can count on it. It's really, really reliable. She felt totally, totally healthy. So this was stage two. She had a resection. She got some radiation to the field. Uh, they did actually pre-resection radiation. Most of the tumor was gone already. They did a, a colon resection. They gave her some Zolota chemotherapy. She's alive and well now to this day. So, but she had a minimally itchy rash and showed up for healthcare in the derm world. So keep this one in mind. I hope you don't see it because that means you're diagnosing someone with cancer. But if you do see it, it's pretty spectacular. It always looks just like this and they have cancer. Okay. This one you should all get. I want 94%. So this woman, I walk into the exam room and she's sitting there. That's a big baggie with hair. So she's 65-year-old, had a full head of scalp hair, totally good health. Her mom died four and a half months ago after a long struggle with metastatic breast cancer. She's a sweet lady. I took care of her. Her sister died one month later in an auto accident. So she's lost her mom. She's lost her sister, both within a very short period of time, four and a half, three and a half months or so previously. She's now on the exam table crying with a bag full of hair and it has 235 hairs in it, more than normal. We all lose a few hairs, that's normal, but a bunch of hair, which is pretty obvious. What's her diagnosis? Androgenetic alopecia, hyperthyroid, hypothyroid, telogen effluvium, or central centrifugal alopecia. I think that's the theme to cops. Um, almost 90% of you got it right. It's telogen effluvium. I did do a little bit of workup just because sometimes hair loss can be multifactorial. It's a, a fun thing because it's challenging. This one seemed to be pretty straightforward, but I just wanted to make sure she wasn't iron deficient, make sure her thyroid was okay. Yes, I did an RPR. Okay, I know pretty heartless of me, and it really wasn't patchy. It was diffuse and just, if you yanked, you got a bunch of hairs. So, but I just checked it to make sure. So telogen effluvium, there's usually some precipitating event, right? Whether it's a physical illness or surgery, it can happen postpartum, some major psychic trauma. For her, the loss of her mother and her sister in a short period of time, to me, was more than enough psychic trauma. It usually lasts somewhere between three to six months, active hair loss. Then it stabilizes, then it regrows, but that regrowth can take a long time. And the treatment of choice is tincture of time. 
Some people will give spironolactone to help this along, especially if it lasts for a long time, 50 to 100 milligrams a day. Some people will do intralesional injections of triamcinolone into the scalp. I have no problems with that. But really, if it's true telogen and effluvium, 90% of these regrow spontaneously. You just have to hold their hand. There is a chronic telogen effluvium, however, where people get this and it just sort of never seems to go away. That's very difficult. I wish I had a magic bullet that would take care of that, but that's when the spironolactone and the interlesional steroids come in handy. There's some other things that can be done. None of them are very, very good. Most telogen effluvium is an acute event and it gets better, and that's what she had. And she regrew eventually and she's fine now. Okay, a little more challenging hair loss. Complicated history. So you have to really, really listen. So this is a 25-year-old, full scalp hair, fine. He presents to the emergency room with multiple complaints. We get consulted because of total alopecia, alopecia totalis, essentially. But he has other complaints. He's got pain in his fingers and toes at the tips. His vision is abnormal. He's got a horrible headache. He's nauseated. In the emergency room and persisting after he's admitted, he's got significant hypertension, which he's never had before. He has a persistent sinus tachycardia. So he doesn't have an arrhythmia, but he's got a heart rate of about 120 plus. He's been seen by the ophthalmologist. They looked in his eyes with the uh, ophthalmoscope and they said he has an optic atrophy, neuropathy. He's got optic atrophy and abnormalities in his optic disc. The, neuro the neurologists have found he has abnormal nerve conduction studies, but his brain is fine and his spinal tap is okay. We get called because of alopecia. But he's got all these other things. So he's got eye and peripheral neuropathy, hypertension and tachycardia, headache, and pain in his fingers and toes. So anybody want to venture a guess, that constellation, not specific, but in general, what might that suggest? Adrenal tumor, maybe. Some of it, for sure. Heavy metal. Heavy metal poisoning. So which one does he have? Mercury, silver, lead, arsenic, or thallium? Okay, we got spread all over there. Yes, it's not silver, you're right. So that would be Argyria, right? He would look silvery gray. If you've ever seen anyone that's been ingesting colloidal silver because they think it helps their immune system, they look like something out of a science fiction movie. They're all silvery and glittery. Uh, but the rest of that doesn't happen. So all of these other ones, mercury, lead, arsenic, and thallium are all reasonable. But let's put them all up together. This is the list, and honestly, I did this. I sat down, I said he's got heavy metal poisoning. I'm just not sure which one. So we sat down, all of us, as a team. We did it on a eraser board, and we put up arsenic, lead, mercury, and thallium. We looked it up, put all the list of the things that can be associated, and here's the way it turned out. Peripheral neuropathy, optic neuropathy, alopecia, tachycardia, and hypertension for thallium. Arsenic, he's got alopecia. For mercury, he's got peripheral neuropathy, tachycardia, and hypertension. So what has most checks? Thallium. Thallium used to be in what? Does anybody know? It isn't anymore. Rat poison. Thallium was in rat poison. It was taken out of US rat poison products, rodent poisons, in the late 1970s. So you should, and it's no commercial products now. You could theoretically be exposed to it in certain metallurgy um, jobs, occupations, but it's pretty unlikely to be exposed to thallium. So we ordered tests. He had increased thallium in his hair, 
in his blood, so it's thallium, and his urine. His wife came in, and when confronted, she broke down and said, she got thallium-containing rat poison online from China. It is odorless, tasteless, and colorless, and she was putting it in his coffee every morning, trying to kill him. Unbelievable. So why were there, because I'm figuring, you know, where's that? So I went and asked him, do you know what thallium is? No. Are you exposed to metals? No. I'm a grade school teacher. Uh, do you have any metal hobbies where you, no. So it had to be external. And the only other thing I could think of is years and years and years ago, rat poison used to be a way to kill people. And if you didn't, the tests for thallium weren't as widely available, and it's odorless, colorless, tasteless, so you would poison them. So I was waiting to confront the wife when she came in that day. She broke down and admitted it, and waiting outside were the police. They handcuffed her and took her out of the hospital, and she was charged with attempted murder. Now, if you just wait, thallium will wear itself out and everything will get better, and that's what happened. And she was convicted of attempted murder and is sitting in Huntsville Prison, north of Houston. That was interesting, wasn't it? Okay, so you'll either know this or you won't know it. It's very straightforward. There's her clinical picture. Those are all firm papillonodules. She's got facial lesions which hurt if you touch them, they hurt. When it's cold, such cold as we get in Houston, January and February, they spontaneously are painful. And her only other complaint, she's on no meds, is that she has spotting in between her periods. So something's not right in her uterus. Does she have neurofibromatosis, Reed's syndrome, Gorlin syndrome, tylosis, or Rubenstein-Tabii syndrome. That should have been with the last one because that's Prince and he probably died of some overdosey thing. So, okay, well, whatever. So we've got 42% with neurofibromatosis and then smatterings of other things. Okay, these are rock hard. It's not like neurofibromas, which are kind of poochy, plus the rest of her story. So that's her abdominal pelvic CT. All that big amorphous mass is a bunch of gigantic lyomyomas in her uterus. And the other part of her CT shows loosened areas in her kidney. That's all renal cell carcinoma. And this is called Reed's syndrome. So you get lyomyomas on the skin. Typically, lyomyomas are painful, and those start fairly early in life. You get lyomyomas in the uterus, which leads to menstrual abnormalities and spotting in between periods. And the third part of it is renal cell carcinoma, which was demonstrated on her CT scan. It's a known genetic mutation which you can actually order for. They can test for that in the peripheral blood autosomal dominant, but it's variable expressivity. So none of her, neither of her parents had anything wrong. She might have been a mutation too. So this is Reed syndrome, lyomyomas on the skin, which are painful typically. Pain gets worse with cold. Lyomyomas in the uterus leads to menstrual abnormalities and renal cell carcinoma. So she's had pretty bad. She had to have a nephrectomy. Those were multiple lesions in the kidney. Then she got some chemotherapy after that. And as best I know, she's doing well. I haven't seen her in quite some time. That's Reed's syndrome. That's the diagnosis. Okay. Now, there's no problem with the diagnosis here, right? He's got a bunch of skin tags. Skin tags are fun. Snip, burn, freeze, gone, happy patient, it's cosmetic, pay me out front. Okay, but, but, here's what I want to know. What might you order reasonably on this patient with multiple skin tags? Colonoscopy, hemoglobin A1C, an ophthalmology consult, liver function studies, or a radiograph of the jaw. 
Okay, a lot of hemoglobin A1C, two-thirds of you, and then kind of split out through the rest. So those of you who put colonoscopy, good idea, but no, not anymore. We don't think that's a true association. Used to be thought, but what is an association is diabetes. A lot of skin tags at an early age increases the risk of developing type 2. It's associated with increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And he's older, so he might already be diabetic. And you would ask him the right questions. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you have to get middle of the night to pee? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, his was actually negative, but it's the point. Think about diabetes. You can ask those questions about hunger and thirst and polydipsia, polyuria, you know, polyphagia. You can ask those questions in three seconds. At least ask those. Also ask about a family history of type 2 diabetes, and then at least get a baseline hemoglobin A1C. File it away in your chart. But I've actually made the diagnosis of diabetes when the primary care folks didn't, just based on them coming in for a whole bunch of skin tags. The skin tags are a dime a dozen. I understand that. But a lot of them at an early age like in the 40s. Think about diabetes. Um, it used to be thought associated with pre-malignant polyps of the colon. That's really been uh, dispelled. And when they're perianal, those of you who put colonoscopy, I think some of you did, perianal, it can be associated with Crohn's disease. So add your three seconds, add two more seconds. Do you have diarrhea, frequent stools, blood and pus, uh, or mucus in your stools. Just looking verbal screen for Crohn's disease. So proper, best answer, hemoglobin A1C. A was a reasonable thing to think. Um, the rest of it, not so much. Okay. Oh, this one's easy. You squeeze on a tumor and it does this. Is that a pilomatrixoma, dermatofibroma, necrobiotic xanthogranuloma, all of the above or none of the above? Survey says, yeah, 86% of you said dermatofibroma. Actually, it's all of them. <laughs> this was a nice paper about that. That was, it's an older paper, but they pointed out that you actually can see it in association with pilomatrixomas. Necrobiotic xanthogranuloma is not exactly an everyday tumor, but you can also see that dimpling effect with all three of those, just so you know. <laughs> Okay, important. 28-year-old Hispanic male with an asymptomatic facial rash. He's healthy on no meds, no drugs. What do you think is likely? GA, sarcoid, tinea fasciae, erythema multiforme, or secondary syphilis? Okay, so we've got sarcoid, and we've got secondary syphilis. Uh, no one too much bit for GA, tinea fasciae, not so much. Erythema multiforme, not so much. Okay, so I like those choices, actually. Um, keep in mind that annular lesions on the face, particularly around orifices, near the mouth, near the nose, near the eyes, is a pattern. It's a pattern that you see with secondary syphilis. It's called annular syphilid. And you see that in skin of color. So Hispanic and African American, primarily. So here's the workup. Just, we weren't so sure. CBC biochem panel, RPR is negative. So you do a biopsy. The biopsy just shows sheets of plasma cells. What's that usually associated with? Syphilis, but he's got a negative RPR. So, what would you do next? Repeat the RPR with prozone dilution, immunohistochemistry on biopsy, PCR on biopsy, obtain a good social history, or all of the above. And yes. All of the above. And in fact, all of the above were done, and his 
serum was such a high titer that it actually makes the RPR, interferes with the RPR. So when you dilute it a little, he came out positive 1 to 1024. It's a really high titer RPR. And on his biopsy that had all those plasma cells, you can go back and do immunohistochemistry. You could do PCR as well. We didn't actually do that. But we did immunohisto, and it just showed sheets of treponema pallidum. So this is secondary syphilis. That's the correct answer. And that pattern is very, very typical. Here are a couple of more patients with these annular lesions on the face. You don't see it off the face. On the face, in skin of color. Keep in mind secondary syphilis. Good job. Okay, that's her axilla. I just wanted to orient you a little bit. That's her axilla. It's a 58-year-old female. She notes a rash in her axilla. Primary care doc sends her to dermatology. Rash. Doesn't burn, doesn't sting, doesn't itch, doesn't hurt. She's a little overweight, but otherwise fine. Her labs recently included fasting blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, biochem panel, triglycerides, cholesterol, CBC. Everything's normal. Negative KOH, looking for tinea versicolor. Negative Woods exam, looking for erythrasma. Not there. So now what's the diagnosis? Dowling Degas, erythrasma, contact, tinea versicolor, or acanthosis nigricans. Okay, good. Three quarters of you got it right. Dowling Degas is a good answer. It's not a bad answer, but that tends to be a little more retiform. It's reticulated like this. This is solid mass of this velvety-looking hyperpigmentation. What is acanthosis sometimes a sign of? Diabetes, but she's got a normal fasting blood sugar and normal hemoglobin A1C. Good answer. Next answer. Malignancy. And then some is hereditary. No one in her family had this. So think diabetes, think malignancy, think family history. So she's got acanthosis nigricans. When it's associated with neoplasia, it's usually concurrent with the diagnosis. So it appears they already have signs and symptoms. It's not like that other erythema gyratum repens where you see that and they have occult cancer. Usually this comes on about the same time they complain about things. Gastric cancer is actually the most common. So it's associated with ease of satiety. They eat and they get full really, really quickly. Sometimes it's GU cancer and occasionally with other things. And we already mentioned diabetes and purely hereditary. So she doesn't have a family history of this. She doesn't have diabetes. But it's at least worth thinking about cancer. That's her mammogram. So from acanthosis nigricans, she went to breast cancer. She had a lumpectomy and radiation and the mild version of chemotherapy. Her cancer's gone. Her acanthosis nigricans disappeared. Really cool. So this can sometimes just be seen in obesity. Just heavy people can get it. But always think about diabetes. Does anyone else in the family have it? An occult or sometimes symptomatic cancer. And so they should really be sent, if they haven't been going regularly, to their primary care for a full workup. And here's the only catch. The primary care doc says, yeah, that little stuff in your arm and it doesn't even burn or say, God, you can't have cancer. When you refer them back for something like this, you have to really spell out what you want them to do. I don't mean every test, but this is a high association with internal cancer. Please work this patient up for age and gender appropriate cancer. So if she hasn't had an OB-GYN exam, a pap smear, someone looking at maybe doing a CT scan of her uterus, a mammogram, chest x-ray if she's a smoker, age and gender appropriate colonoscopy, age and gender appropriate cancer workup, please. This is associated with cancer. It's not cancer itself. You can order the hemoglobin A1C and you can find out if she's diabetic. But 
the cancer workup I would leave to someone else, but you have to tell them what you want, or they'll look at this, and I've had primary care people blow it off and tell the patient, oh, it's nothing, it's just a nothing, rash, you're allergic to your deodorant. This is life-saving. It's a serious thing. Okay, I expect 98%. I have a melanoma on my lip. I'm scared I'm going to die. Those were her words. 83-year-old female, but it's been there for 10 years. Now she's deciding she has a melanoma. She has a bunch of other little stuff. So here's what I did. Okay, so what is this? Venous lake, angiokeratoma, Kaposi's sarcoma, melanoma, or seborrheic keratosis? 97, 98. Yeah, good, I like it, venous lake. And you can verify that with a dermatoscope. You can see if it's reddish or purplish, and it's in, usually in these little areas with a little fibrous connecting tissue in between the little areas. It's a very straightforward diagnosis. I said, you know what? If that had been melanoma, it would have been nodular. You've had it for 10 years. You'd be dead by now. You're fine. Are you sure? Let me show you. Pushed it down, held a mirror in front of her and said, Melanoma doesn't collapse. Oh, I'm so happy. Good. Venus Lake. Okay. Some of you might have seen this picture yesterday when I talked about the itchy patient. Don't shout it out. 82-year-old female. She had breast cancer years and years ago. She takes a few medications. She's been on them for a very long time. She suddenly is itchy. And here she looks next to another of my patients who's 82 years old. Just so if you can't quite tell, I'm giving you a comparison. Okay, what's her diagnosis? Pancreatic, parotid, esophageal, papillary thyroid, cancer, or is she drinking colloidal silver? 95, 96. 97. It's 90-something. I can't see. But it's 90-something percent. Right. She's got pancreatic cancer. She's jaundiced. This is actually her CT scan. She already has mats in the liver. See that big thing with the big arrows pointing to it? That's her pancreatic cancer. And it's obstructing her biliary tree, and so she's jaundiced. So pancreatic cancer is the right diagnosis. Okay, this is a little tough, and I'm gonna tell you, this case ended up in court. I actually was a, a witness on this case. So it's a 53-year-old welder. He's had multiple episodes of painful thing right on his hand, right there. He's been admitted for presumed cellulitis. Three episodes looked like this, some others didn't look exactly like this, but similar, 22 times. Every time he's admitted, he gets IV antibiotics, incision and drainage, and he's actually had a couple of grafts placed where the whole thing's been cut out, and then they put a graft on. He's admitted now. He is febrile. He has a high white count with a left shift, so he's got a bunch of polys, 16,000, and he's got an elevated sed rate. What is this? Pemphigus, pemphigoid, atypical pyoderma gangrenosum, atypical mycobacterial infection, or chronic thermal trauma because he's a welder. Okay, 48% said atypical mycobacterial infection. The next one down from that's atypical pyodermic gangrenosum and then a few others. Okay, you're gonna learn something. So what do you do next? You biopsy. So I biopsied those two areas, now one that's kind of eroded and one that looks almost like it's trying to form a bulla, but it's not quite, it's very edematous tissue. And both biopsies, so sheets of polys, just pure polys in the dermis. 
And this is called neutrophilic, neutrophils, dermatosis of the dorsal hand. But it's actually part of a different spectrum. It's part of the pyodermic gangrenosum spectrum. And you see this, some people call it bullous sweet syndrome, some people call it atypical pyoderma gangrenosum. The version that's on the hand is called neutrophilic dermatosis of the dorsal hand, but they're all the same thing. It's a bunch of polys, they usually have an elevated sed rate, they usually are febrile, like sweet syndrome is, but it's associated with things, particularly with cancer, or a monoclonal gammopathy, or myelodysplasia, or inflammatory bowel disease sometimes, like pyoderma gangrenosum is, or it may just be an idiopathic entity. So it, here's another example on the arm, except this one isn't as eroded. It looks like an infection. It acts like an infection. Lots of polys in the blood, lots of polys in the tissue, fever, but it's a benign thing and it responds to steroids. So why this came to court is that 22 admissions with a bunch of surgeries, including some skin grafts, multiple pathologies, all showed nothing but polys. The patient was now scarred in multiple places from the graft donor sites. His entire hand, the top of his hand, you see how it looked like this? That's how it was fixed, from scar tissue. Multiple cultures, including mycobacteria, some of you voted for that. That's a reasonable thought. Every culture was negative for everything, fungi, bacteria, and nobody in dermatology have ever been consulted. They called for us as a consult, and it was sort of a slam dunk. The patient and his family got mad, and they sued his primary physician and the plastic surgeon who had been taking care of him with all these incisions, drainages, grafts, with negative cultures, negative special stains, negative anything for infection, and mostly for not calling dermatology, when one consult with dermatology gave the right diagnosis. By the way, he was treated with steroids, and the whole thing went away. So their defense was, well, we thought it was an infection and we didn't want to give steroids. Yes, but like 22 times, really? And so he was actually, the, the finding was for the plaintiff, for him, um, and he got a cash settlement. And there's a point at which you just have to think, I need help. I don't know what this is. And it's fine to say what, I don't know what it is. And you ask for help. You ask for colleagues in your office, somebody else, get a second opinion, and they should have done that somewhere along the line. Okay, this is my oldest daughter's best friend. I get a call from the emergency room in our affiliated community hospital, and here's her story. Her cat start, was outside and started fighting with another cat on the stoop, so she went outside and tried to separate them. Rule number one, never separate fighting animals. They don't like it. So the, her cat bit her. She goes to the emergency room, she's got a bunch of bites, they bled mildly and now they're bruised and they really don't hurt very much. But she's got these, it's happened an hour ago, that's an important point. And she has a few more on her wrist and a few more on the dorsal foot. But they don't really go down here where the little small joints are and they really don't go down on the dorsum of the foot or the small bones and then the joints of the small bones and the metatarsals and metacarpals are, they're just north of that. And they all look about the same. So what would you do? She's called, you're called to the emergency room or she comes to see you. Clean the wound and close anything that needs closure. She should be admitted with IV antibiotics, ice wraps and nothing else, oral augmentin, or surgical consult for tissue debridement. Okay, so we've got a bunch, two-thirds of you said D. Um, a substantial third of you said admission with IV antibiotics. Okay, admission with IV antibiotics is not the right answer, but it's okay to say that. 
because it's a cat bite. Cat bites are penetrating, they're deep, they have pastorella multacida as part of their oral flora, and if these were just a little south and involved these little tiny joints, probably admission and IV antibiotics would be indicated. The other reason that would make it indicated if she had delayed presentation more than eight hours, but she was there an hour afterwards. So de delayed presentation and involvement of the little tiny joints on the dorsum of the foot or on the dorsum of the hand. I don't fault IV antibiotics in admission, but I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Remember, most cat bites are due to cats that the people know, that deep penetrating injury, and I already talked about pastorella multacida, and its predilection to destroy tissue. And these would be IV antibiotics in admission. See how much more red and diffuse they are? See how much swelling there are? And notice the delay from the bite to presentation. 12 hours, 48 hours. You see that 48-hour one with the fingers already sort of fixed like this with all that swelling? That's her mother who has 24 cats. I love cats. But 24? And she did the same thing her daughter did after her daughter had been in the emergency room and had this happen. She tried to separate two fighting cats, two of her own cats, and one cat bit her really deeply. She waited and waited and waited, didn't call me or anybody else, and she certainly could have. I know her. Our girls grew up together as best friends and are still best friends as young adults. She finally showed up in the emergency room like that in extreme pain, massive swelling. She could not move either of these fingers. And so she got IV antibiotics. She got a hand surgeon who opened this all up, took out a bunch of devitalized tissue, and she's okay, although she does have a little residual difficulty moving those fingers. So what I chose to do with her, the drug of choice for dog bites, cat bites, and human bites is Augmentin, uh, Amoxclav, is the drug of choice. And you give a high dose, the 875, 125, twice a day, until basically if there's swelling, swelling's gone red, if the red's gone, and in her, I just did it for 14 days. Could have probably gotten away with 10 days, but I wanted to make sure because she's my daughter's best friend. So that would be a reasonable thing to do early on. Here's another person with a round lesion on the face. And we're almost done. Six-year-old Korean male resides at home. He's a student. He's got intractable itching on his face. His scalp is okay. Good health, no meds. Is this sarcoid, secondary syphilis, tinea fasciae, granuloma annulare, or Hansen's disease? It itches. Okay, let me start off by saying, if you think sarcoid under about age 10, think again. It's probably not. He could be another surprise, secondary syphilis, because I've done that to you, but it wasn't. A granulomanulary can itch, but a solitary lesion on the face, kind of not likely. He's from Korea. Maybe they have Hansen's disease in Korea. No, India and Brazil. It's not prevalent in most countries where it used to be. So he'd have to be from India or Brazil. He's from Korea. Korea is a very advanced, South Korea is a very advanced society with good medical care, and they don't have Hansen's disease there. So the statistical likelihood, just based on likelihood, would be tinea fasciae. That's his cat. See the fur loss? It's tinea from the cat to the kid, because the kids, you know, they like holding the fur against them. And if you see annular, scaly, itchy lesions on the face, usually one to three weeks after Christmas, it's a puppy or kitten, and the kid's been holding the puppy or kitten. And you got to treat the animal, and you got to treat the person. Okay, so everybody gets treated. Tinea fasciae. Okay, almost done. Nursing home patient takes a bunch of drugs, including prednisone and methotrexate. This is very itchy. He said itchy 24-7, and he's got these fissures that are painful. 
Whoops. Where's the diagnosis? That's not right. Okay, what's the diagnosis? There's your mineral oil prep and your biopsy. Scabies. He's got Norwegian scabies, right? Or, or crusted scabies, because he's on methotrexate and prednisone. So keep that in mind. There it is, crusted scabies. And his big risk, keep this in mind, is not just that he's itchy and uncomfortable and contagious. It's those fissures can be portals of entry for bacteria. The big risk in crusted scabies is sepsis. And he's on prednisone and methotrexate, which even increases his risk. So it's important to treat this. By the way, this is how you treat crusted scabies. Ivermectin, standard dose, 200 micrograms per kilogram. You give it twice the first week, day one and day two, so Monday, Tuesday. Twice the second week, Monday and Tuesday. And then once that, that's five doses, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday, Monday, or any two consecutive days, two consecutive days, and then once, five doses. And you should probably combine that with topical permethrin every day for two weeks, although that's somewhat controversial. But you have nothing to lose. But definitely five doses of ivermectin. That will give you over 90% if you cure. If you don't do multiple doses, if you just do a single or two doses, which would be typical for regular scabies, you won't get rid of this. Some more crusted scabies I've seen, just for beautiful pictures. Okay. 33-year-old black female with gradual frontal hair loss. She's had the same hairstyle since high school. Healthy and no meds. What does she have? Alopecia areata syphilis, traction alopecia, lichen planus, or trichotillomania. Yeah, yeah, attraction. Very typical appearance. This is called the fringe sign. If you have hair loss and you have this little fringe of hair in front of it, that's almost always related to traction. They've been pulling their hair back too tightly and they start losing the hair because that kind of chokes the hairs. But you leave that fringe in front. Very, very common. It's traction alopecia. Okay, I'm gonna skip this one because we did this one when we did tropical medicine. Larval migraines. Okay, just an important concept. 81-year-old female, she's itching in a nursing home. That's all I'm gonna tell you. <laughs> Does she have a brain tumor or dementia, internal cancer, breast, colon, lung cancer, dry skin, scabies, are all of those reasonable diagnostic possibilities. Those of you who came to my itchy patient, you should get this one right. Yeah, they're all reasonable possibilities. Scabies, though, the votes for scabies, absolutely essential. That's your choice number one, till you prove it isn't. So let me tell you what happened to her. Neuroconsult, everything's fine. She doesn't look or feel dry. Moisturizer doesn't help. All routine blood work is normal. She's actually had a, a good workup for a variety of reasons. There's no evidence of cancer. She's even had a colonoscopy that's normal. What still needs to be done? Scabies prep. There's her scabies prep. There are the eggs. There are the feces. There's mom. Two treatments, ivermectin, permethrin. Okay, so all of the above are reasonable. Which patient has a better prognosis, A or B? Whoops, we didn't do that as a... So which has a better prognosis, A or B? Shout it out. A, worse it is, lower prognosis. Look at that. We'll make this the last one, maybe one more. That's on her back, that's her bra strap. She's here for a routine skin cancer check. That wasn't there six months ago. What would you do? Would you biopsy it, excise it, ignore it, order radiotherapy, or just spray it with a little liquid nitrogen? Anybody who answers E, please jump from the roof 
of this building. <laughs> or C. <laughs> no, C's okay. I, you know, you might ignore it if you wanted to be sued. Um, so we have biopsy or excise, and those are both correct. Somehow, this is an ugly duck. I mean, my God, look at it. Multiple colors, dark black at the end of it. So you've got to have histology on this thing so you could either biopsy it or excise it. It's small enough. You see the relative size compared to her bra strap. I would just go ahead and excise. Now, you don't know the thickness, so you don't necessarily know the margins, which means you might have to go back. But then the thickness could be site dependent. So there's a good reason to biopsy so you get thickness. There's a good reason to just excise it, understanding you might have to go take another centimeter. But whatever you do, this needs histology. That's the key point, and y'all got that. Most of you got it right. Okay, there's a scalp. Where else would you look? Buttock, ear, axilla, face, or two of the above? Okay, we've got two of the above. I like that. Good for you. Because it's her face and her ear. It's all discoid lupus, and those are common places. All of the above. So, ear and face. Okay, we'll make this the last one. And this is a real story. Real patient. 81-year-old, he's got lots of comorbidities. He's had two coronary bypasses. He's got renal insufficiency, hypertension, diabetes. He's had 28 basal cells, five squamous cells, mostly on his scalp. He's had things, everything done, Mohs, excision. His whole scalp has been irradiated. He's lost a follow-up for five years, and then he comes in looking like this. No one will give him a medical clearance for any surgery. He's had radiation to the whole area already. His complaint is it's oozing and bleeding. He's embarrassed. He can't go out. He has no quality of life. And he asked, can you just make it so I can at least enjoy the few years I have left? True statement, just like that. Heartbreaking. What would you do? Radiation, again, he's had full scalp radiation. EDNC multiple sites. Most, I will tell you, several biopsies all show basal cell. This is all basal cell. Mohs surgery, oral hedgehog pathway inhibitor, or tell him, lie thyself by the still waters and just accept your fate. Whoops. Whoops, I didn't give you a chance to answer. So what would you do? Or it didn't come up as a, as a, but what would you do? D. D is good. And here's what happened. He was given Vismodegeb. He had some side effects. You can expect side effects from Ariveg. You're going to have side effects, which you'll have to deal with. There are ways of dealing with them, sometimes easily, sometimes it just can't be done. And here's what happened. It's not perfect. He's not cured, but he's almost 90 years old, and he's lived now with this. And I will tell you, this is just on Katetti. I'm not saying it's a accepted way, but people are now giving more and more intermittent doses of Ariveg, and that seems to get away from some of the side effects. And some of the dosing regimens have even been one week on, one week off, one week on, two or three weeks off, a month on, a month off. There's, they're all over the, there's actually literature looking at two months on, two months off, two months on, three months off, and that works every bit as well as every day, but it didn't reduce the side effect percentage. So I think it has to be shorter aliquots, a week or two on, then two or three weeks off. It's slower, but what do I need for him? Do I need rapidity? Do I need him to be as good as he's gonna be in the next two weeks? Is he going on a Caribbean cruise? He just wants to be able to go out and not have blood and serum dripping down his face. So I did one week on, one week off. One week on, one week off. And this was his final result about four months later. He's thrilled to death. And he's staying on one week on, three weeks off. And it's staying pretty much like this. 
It's improvisation, it's off-label, the correct dosing is one pill per day, every day, deal with the side effects, but this is a great way of making life better. So that's my last case. Thank you so much for staying till the end. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.